Our Father, we know that your word is true. So would you help us now as we come before you to really hear and to believe. Lord, we want to see your glory, the glory of your death and resurrection. By your spirit, would you bring light to our eyes and light to our hearts so that we might follow you. You're a good God, and we do trust you and give you praise. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you'd like to read along with me, I'll be reading from the Gospel of Mark in chapter 8. There are uh, pew Bibles there in some of the pews, but if you have a Bible there or a Bible of your own, if you'd like to read along, we'll be in Mark chapter 8. My Bible's translation is the English Standard Version. It's slightly different than what you see in the Pew Bible, but it's essentially the same. So hear now the word of God. This is Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is God's word. So in some ways, this is a bit of a strange text for us to read on Easter. Normally, we read the part that we said during our call to worship, that something about a tomb and there's angels and he's not here, he's risen. And all of that's true. It's vitally true for us, but if you've been here with us over the past several weeks and months, you know that we've been following Jesus through the Gospel of Mark, so this is where we are next. We're in Mark chapter 8, and as we've been following him through the Gospel of Mark, Mark begins in the very first verse of his Gospel, setting us up like this. He says, this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Gospel meaning this is the good news of Jesus Christ. So that's the beginning of Mark. The end of it is Easter, is after the cross, that he goes to the grave, and that he's resurrected. But we're 
somewhere in the middle. We're right in the middle of this gospel, this good news, while Jesus is headed toward Easter. And he said in this process in the middle that the kingdom of God is at hand. And in the process, we've already seen a number of things from Jesus about this kingdom of God being at hand, that he's been healing, that he's been teaching, that he's been casting out the dead, he's been making the blind see, he's been making the lame walk, and he's even uh, raised uh, the dead. And culturally, then and now, Jesus, by many, was viewed as a pretty good guy. He's a guy who does good, he teaches us stuff, and boy, he really helps people. So then the question for us is, if all of this is true about Jesus, he's a good teacher, he does good, he helps people, why then did they reject him? Why then did they kill him? And why, if Jesus is so nice and good, do so many not follow him? And I think the answer to that, we get some light in this text. This is really a pivotal moment in the book of Mark. Up to this point, Jesus has been teaching in many ways in parables. He's telling stories that are in some ways veiled. They don't understand the full meaning of it. They not yet get what's going on. Um, and some of that veiled aspect continues. That's the reason why he says, don't tell them, because the time has not yet come that Jesus is working on a particular plan in the Father's timing. But for the first time now, it says in here that Jesus spoke plainly. He was very clear and explicit, particularly about his own death. He says, I will die. We'll get to that in a moment, but first, he asks them a few questions. If you look at the very beginning, he says in verse 27, who do people say that I am? So he's talking to his disciples. Who are people telling you? What are you hearing? And they say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're like Elijah. Some people say you're a prophet. If he asked us that today, I wonder what sorts of things we might say. You know, we might say, who, does, who do people say that I, Jesus, am? We might say, oh, he's a good teacher. He's my co-pilot. Um, he's my friend and confidant. He's a good spiritual teacher. But then Jesus kind of interrupts this conversation and says, okay, who do people say that I am? And now he plows right into their living room and says, but who do you say that I am. And before we move on too quickly, we need to pause on that for a moment. That's something that should strike us, that Jesus is really asking that, who do you say that I am? Because the way that we answer that question will really determine the course of our lives. So after he asks this, he says, who do you say that I am? Peter speaks up and answers. You are the Christ. It's the first time we've heard the word Christ since the very beginning in verse 1. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now we see it here again in chapter 8. And for us, we hear the word Christ mentioned a lot. Jesus Christ. It almost sounds like his last name, like Jesus Smith or Jesus Stephanopoulos or something like that. Something Jewish, probably because he was a Jew. 
but it wasn't his last name. They referred to each other by their family status, so he would be Jesus, son of Mary, or by their hometown, so he would be Jesus of Nazareth. But when we call him here Jesus Christ, the word Christ means anointed. And anointed is when they would pour oil over someone's head and it would run down all their hair, get on all their clothes. And that means a person was appointed to a particular purpose, very often to the priesthood or to a kingship. So it's the version of some sort of ordination service. Like, we have similar things here when someone has to put their hand on the Bible or make vows. We do similar things. This is an anointing, an appointment to a particular purpose. And it's not just, he's not just a Christ, an anointed person. Peter says here that he is the Christ, a particular Christ. There's a particular title here then, and Jesus right after refers to himself as the Son of Man, which is a reference all the way back to the Old Testament in Daniel 7, where there's this figure who comes, who's a divine Messiah, a Savior, who's King. So taken all together then, Jesus and the disciples are saying here that Jesus is Christ. Jesus is king, and not any king. Jesus is the king. Okay, I get that. But then it gets really bizarre, because if Jesus is really the ultimate king, what he says next is extremely strange. Look again at verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. This is not how a king typically works. In fact, it was so surprising that right after this, Peter goes, no, no, Jesus, that is not how it goes. That will never be, there's got to be some other way. And then Jesus right away rebukes Peter for saying that, because he says that the Son of Man must Suffer. You'll notice there, he does not say the Son of Man will suffer, although that's true. He says the Son of Man must suffer. Why? Why must this king, the Son of Man, suffer? The answer to that, you could really turn to any page of Scripture and see that the kingdom of the world is a mess. Sometimes in interacting with people, particularly those that don't believe, they'll look at parts of the Bible and say, look here, look what happens here, look what happens here, isn't that awful? And they're right. <laughs> there are so many things that people, even God's people, are doing that are really awful. One of those particular places is in the book of Judges in the Old Testament. And what's happening here is God has brought his people into the promised land, and they're to have milk and honey, and they have a land finally and a place to be, and things spiral out of control from there all through the book of Judges. It's one mess after another mess after another mess until at the end, if you read it, it's really frightening. Uh, there's a bunch of wars, idol worship. There is murder, rape, and dismemberment. These are, this is God's people doing this, by the way. And the very last verse in the book of Judges, in Judges 21, 
is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The problem then, the writer says, is that there was no king, not just a government king, but there was not an ultimate ruler over them. And so everyone then became their own kings. We all did what we wanted, and that caused all sorts of mess. And that's not just the big stuff, rape, murder, war, idolatry, all of those things, although it certainly is that. You can turn to any page and see that this sort of self-kingship um, happens even in the small things. James chapter 4. James addresses this similar problem that it's not just about the big nasty stuff, but it's the small, the subtle things. Listen to what he talks about in this uh, problem with kingship. James writes in chapter 4, verse 1 What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Isn't it this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, and so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel, and you don't have because you don't ask, and you ask and you don't receive because you wrongly ask to spend it on your own passions, you adulterous people. Those are really strong words. But if I'm honest with myself, they're very true. Quarrels, fights, sometimes that's big and overt. Maybe we have those in our families, sometimes in the town square. Big battles because I am king, you are king, and everyone wants his own way. Sometimes those fights are very subtle and secret. We fight someone in our mind and smile and say, ah, sweetheart, but we're really hating them somewhere down deep. We're really fighting and quarreling internally. This is what produces gossip and dissensions and all sorts of mess because the kingdom of the world is a mess. I hope I'm not just being uh, dark and depressing here. I think the scripture tells us that this is true and even people that are outside of the faith very often recognize this same sort of problem, that there's something wrong with us internally. Uh, the poet uh, Oscar Wilde uh, was a 19th century poet, playwright, brilliant man, but he was not a believer, and he was sent to prison for a number of things, but he wrote a whole bunch of letters, and by this point, he'd been in prison for two years, but this is a section of something that he himself has written, even as a person that does not know the Lord. He writes... Desire, at the end, was a malady, a sickness, or a madness, or both. I grew careless of the lives of others. I took pleasure where it pleased me and passed on. I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character, and that therefore what one has done in the secret chamber, one has someday to cry aloud on the housetop. I ceased to be Lord over myself. I was no longer the captain of my soul, and I didn't even know it. I allowed pleasure to dominate me, and I ended in horrible disgrace. There's only one thing for me now, absolute humility. That even this man that does not know the Lord can recognize that there are things in himself that are at war 
to the point that they even take over our own personal kingship, that we no longer are the lords of ourselves, that we're not the captain of our souls, that we try to be our own kings, but we make a really bad job of it. The reality is that ourselves are actually being consumed, and we destroy ourselves, and we destroy others, and even worse, when we do these things in offending creation, we are offending the creator. We are offending and violating a holy God, and all of this, the scripture says, deserves the righteous wrath of God. That's very bad news. Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer and die. And by this, he means then that he's sent by the Father and Jesus himself goes willingly to the cross so that he will take the sin of all believers, of all of his people, to the grave, that he would be the substitute for the wrath of God and that he would, in the process, dethrone all of these poisonous kings. That's good news for us. That's what the scripture calls the gospel. So then we still have the same question that we've had at the beginning. If that's really good news, if Jesus is this kind of good, loving, self-sacrificing God, why then do so many not follow him? And I think we get the answer in Mark in verse 34. At this point, he's been talking to his disciples for a little bit, and now it says he called the crowds. So he's got something that is really everybody needs to hear. Everybody, come in close, which if he were here, nobody would get, you know, there'd be a nice little semicircle of space out in front of him. But come in close. I need something. I need to tell you something that you really need to hear. But what he says is a little upsetting. Verse 34 And calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To take up your cross. It's really a heavy statement. It's the equivalent of take up your electric chair and follow me. That's not really an appealing statement. It's a strong statement, so we have to look at what it means. What does Jesus mean when he says, take up your cross? Let's first talk about what he does not mean here. To take up one's cross is not abuse. There is no right here for the sorts of things that happen in families and sometimes outside of families where there's beating or berating of a person. This is dehumanizing And if you've been the recipient of abuse, I'm so very sorry. That is not according to the scripture. And if you've been the perpetrator of abuse, you need the help and mercy of Jesus and his church. We can walk together in this. So to take up our cross is not a license for abuse. It is also not just facing a hard thing. Sometimes you hear the phrase, people say, well, I just have a cross to bear. Have you ever heard that? Oh, that's just my cross to bear. And by that, they usually mean that they're facing something really hard, maybe some sort of personal difficulty, a challenging circumstance, maybe some sort of physical uh, struggle or disability. And all of those things are true and they're hard, and we need Jesus' help, and he will help us. But that's not what he means here, not in this text. 
This is to take up our cross is not just facing a hard thing. And finally, it is not just following Christ's example. Because we know that when Jesus died, he did something very unique. It wasn't just any cross. What was happening there was complete uh, atonement or covering over of sins of all who believe. That Jesus was the one who perfectly fulfilled the law, never sinned, never violated his brother, never violated the Father. And so he went to the cross to die on sinners' behalf. And that work is completely finished. He said that on the cross. It's finished. It's done. I have paid the debt of all who believe. And we don't do that. I don't pay the debt of anyone who believes. I can't. I have my own debt that I owe as a sinner myself. So it's not just following the example of Jesus. So what does he mean when he says, take up your cross and follow me? We have to look at the whole thing in verse 34. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Listen for it again. Deny himself. Not deny your stuff. Your possessions, the things you own. Not deny your ambitions. Not deny your own body. It's more than all of those things. He says, deny your self. Later, he'll, he'll describe it as losing your life. Basically, this is the denial of our whole person. Our total identity. Because we will not leave the throne unless we die. This is different than, than beating up ourselves for wrong things. Sometimes we think that that's right, but that's not what the scripture calls us to. Somehow if I can pay for it, if I can atone for it myself, that's really actually still keeping the self at the center of the throne. If I can do this, then I'll fix it. We whip ourselves over things done wrong. But Jesus calls us to confess our sin, to take all that sin to the cross and to leave it there because he is the king, not us. It's the same sort of thing that if you have a, a bad tooth, you know, the one way in the back that causes you all sorts of trouble, just trying to eat some pizza. Every time I bite down, it hurts me. If I've got a bad tooth, a really bad tooth, it does not help me to brush it. It will not help me to whiten it. It will not even help me sometimes to cap it or to crown it. That tooth needs to come out. So Jesus says then, we're to lose ourselves, to deny ourselves that the self needs to come out. That doesn't leave the throne of our lives empty then, that would be scary news. Because then anybody could come in and point us in whatever direction and do whatever they wanted with us. And we don't want that sort of thing. We shouldn't want that sort of thing. But Jesus says, I want you off the throne so that I can take the throne of your life. I want you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and the rest of it is, and follow me. That Jesus would be the only king. He says, I want all of you. 
I want all your sins, your struggles, your pains, your joys, your hopes, your dreams, your rebellions, your addictions. I want all of you, every piece of you, every breath, every moment of your life. I want that. So why would we do that? Because that's really a high call to deny ourselves and take up our cross, to abandon myself and follow after Jesus. Why would I do that? Many don't. Many listen to this and say, no, thank you. I might take part of Jesus or think I can take part of Jesus when I need him, but still, ultimately, I want to be on the own, my own throne. I want my own way. Why, then, would I take up my cross to follow Jesus? Part of the answer to this is that you take up your cross already. You are already doing it. A lot of this is unavoidable. We all take up our cross and follow something. We give our time, our energy, and our attention trying to get the girl, the degree, the promotion, the sale, the job, to get out of the job, to get the right look, to get relaxation, to get credit, to get happiness, to get rid of the weight, to get the kids out of the house, to get the kids back into the house, to get peace, to get contentment, to get rest. We are all taking up our cross to follow something. And Jesus points out here, he says, he starts talking toward the end of this, what does it profit a man, even if he gains the whole world, if he forfeits his soul? He's talking about what's the gain here? What's the end game? What's going on? What is really, in essence, here's his question, what is worth giving up my life and taking up my cross for? Paul would say, Jesus is really worth it. Um, he talks about this in Philippians chapter 3. He writes in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 8. This, was, this is what the Apostle Paul says. Indeed, I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, that I might share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, so that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. When Paul here talks about all things as being rubbish, he doesn't mean that he doesn't care about anything else that everything else is without value. He loves a lot of things. He loves work, beauty, people, learning. But ultimately, he says, I might love all of those things, but I love Christ more. It's not that those things are worthless, but that Christ is worth more. And even if I lost everything else, but I still had gained Christ, it would be worth it. There's a paradox here, then. 
that if I had to lose everything else to gain Christ to be worth it, it sounds like life would then be empty. All I've got left in the room is Jesus. The paradox is that far from leaving our lives empty, the process of this actually makes our lives full. He brings up this paradox here in verse 35. That the harder we try to save our lives, the more of it we lose. But the opposite is also true. That when we lose our lives, when we take up our our cross and follow Jesus, we will actually save our lives. And this is not just talking about heaven or the afterlife, although that is also true. This affects our life now. C.S. Lewis, one of the great thinkers of of the 20th century, wrote on this in his book, Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis writes, Your real new self will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for Christ. Does that sound strange? The same principle holds, you know, for more everyday matters. Even in social life, you'll never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you're making. Even in literature and art, No man who bothers about originality will ever be original. But if you simply try to tell the truth without caring two pence how often it has been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without ever having noticed it. The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the end Only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. The story of Easter is not mainly a story about death, although it does Involve death. Death is an important part of Easter. The story of Easter is mainly about life, particularly about life in Jesus, because Jesus Christ takes his body into the grave. With it, he takes into the grave the sin of all who believe, and he calls those believers then to take up their cross and to follow him. And if we peek into that grave, though, and look for what's in there now, we know he's not there. He's risen for all believers. The end is not the death of the self. The end is new life of the self in Jesus. And this is worth every bit of taking up our cross and following after Jesus Christ the risen and glorious King. Would you pray with me?
our Father, our strength on our own is not big enough for these things. That while we might want to take up our cross and follow after you, we are weak in many ways. Father, we need you for even this. But we want to follow you. We want to know you. We want to bring you praise. We want that our lives are ultimately laid down on your behalf and that in the end we trust then by your resurrection you do give life. Lord, help us to believe this and help us to follow you. These things we ask in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.